Chapter Ten of an Essay on the Principle of Population. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. An Essay on the Principle of Population by Thomas Malthus. Chapter Ten. Mr. Godwin's System of Equality error of attributing all the vices of mankind to human institutions mr godwin's first answer to the difficulty arising from population totally insufficient mr godwin's beautiful system of equality supposed to be realized its utter destruction simply from the principle of population in so short a time as thirty years in reading Mr. Godwin's ingenious and able work on political justice, it is impossible not to be struck with the spirit and energy of his style, the force and precision of some of his reasonings, the ardent tone of his thoughts, and particularly with the impressive earnestness of manner which gives an air of truth to the whole. At the same time, it must be confessed that he has not proceeded in his inquiries with the caution that sound philosophy seems to require. His conclusions are often unwarranted by his premises. He fails sometimes in removing the objections which he himself brings forward. He relies too much on general and abstract propositions which will not admit of application. And his conjectures certainly far outstrip the modesty of nature. The system of equality which Mr. Godwin proposes is, without doubt, by far the most beautiful and engaging of any that has yet appeared an amelioration of society to be produced merely by reason and conviction were as much more the promise of permanence than any change effected and maintained by force the unlimited exercise of private judgment is a doctrine inexpressibly grand and captivating and has a vast superiority over those systems where every individual is in a manner a slave of the public the substitution of benevolence as the master-spring and moving principle of society, instead of self-love, is a consummation devoutly to be wished for. In short, it is impossible to contemplate the whole of this fair structure without emotions of delight and admiration, accompanied with ardent longing for the period of its accomplishment. But, alas, that moment can never arrive. The whole is little better than a dream, a beautiful phantom of the imagination these gorgeous palaces of happiness and immortality these solemn temples of truth and virtue will dissolve like the baseless fabric of a vision when we awaken to real life and contemplate the true and genuine situation of man on earth mr godwin at the conclusion of the third chapter of his eighth book speaking of population says there is a principle in human society by which population is perpetually kept down to the level of the means of subsistence thus among the wandering tribes of america and asia we never find through the lapse of ages that population has so increased as to render necessary the cultivation of the earth this principle which mr godwin thus mentions as some mysterious and occult cause which he does not attempt to investigate will be found to be the grinding law of necessity misery and the fear of misery the great error under which mr godwin labours throughout his whole work is the attributing almost all the vices and misery that are seen in civil society to human institutions political regulations and the established administration of property are with him the fruitful sources of all evil 
the hotbeds of all the crimes that degrade mankind. Were this really a true state of the case, it would not seem a hopeless task to remove evil completely from the world, and reason seems to be the proper and adequate instrument for effecting so great a purpose. But the truth is, that though human institutions appear to be the obvious and obtrusive causes of such mischief to mankind, yet, in reality, they are light and superficial. They are mere feathers that float on the surface, in comparison with those deeper-seated causes of impurity that corrupt the springs and render turbid the whole stream of human life. Mr. Godwin, in his chapter on the benefits attendant on a system of equality, says, The spirit of oppression, the spirit of servility, and the spirit of fraud, these are the immediate growth of the established administration of property. They are alike hostile to intellectual improvement. The other vices of envy, malice, and revenge are their inseparable companions. In a state of society, where man lived in the midst of plenty, and where all shared alike the bounties of nature, these sentiments would inevitably expire. The narrow principle of selfishness would vanish. No man being obliged to guard his little store, or provide with anxiety and pain for his restless wants, each would lose his individual existence in the thought of the general good. No man would be an enemy to his neighbour, for they would have no subject of contention and of consequence philanthropy would resume the empire which reason assigns her mind would be delivered from her perpetual anxiety about corporal support and free to expatiate in the field of thought which is congenial to her each would assist the inquiries of all this would indeed be a happy state but that it is merely an imaginary picture, with scarcely a feature near the truth, the reader, I am afraid, is already too well convinced. Man cannot live in the midst of plenty. All cannot share alike the bounties of nature. Were there no established administration of property, every man would be obliged to guard with force his little store. Selfishness would be triumphant. The subjects of contention would be perpetual. Every individual mind would be under a constant anxiety about corporeal support, and not a single intellect would be left free to expatiate in the field of thought. How little Mr. Godwin has turned the attention of his penetrating mind to the real state of man on earth will sufficiently appear from the manner in which he endeavours to remove the difficulty of an overcharged population. He says, The obvious answer to this objection is that to reason thus is to foresee difficulties at a great distance. Three-fourths of the habitable globe is now uncultivated. The parts already cultivated are capable of immeasurable improvement. Myriads of centuries of still increasing population may pass away, and the earth be still found sufficient for the subsistence of its inhabitants. I have already pointed out the error of supposing that no distress and difficulty would arise from an overcharged population before the earth absolutely refused to produce any more. But let us imagine for a moment Mr. Godwin's beautiful system of equality realized in its utmost purity, and see how soon this difficulty might be expected to press under so perfect a form of society. A theory that will not admit of application cannot possibly be just. Let us suppose all the causes of misery and vice in this island removed. War and contention cease. Unwholesome trades and manufactories do not exist. Crowds no longer collect together in great and pestilent cities for purposes of court intrigue, of commerce, and vicious gratifications. Simple, healthy, and rational amusements take place of drinking, gaming, and debauchery. There are no towns sufficiently large to have any prejudicial effects on the human constitution. 
the greater part of the happy inhabitants of this terrestrial paradise live in hamlets and farmhouses scattered over the face of the country. Every house is clean, airy, sufficiently roomy, and in a healthy situation. All men are equal. The labours of luxury are at end, and the necessary labours of agriculture are shared amicably among all. The number of persons, and the produce of the island, we suppose to be the same as at present. The spirit of benevolence, guided by impartial justice, will divide this produce among all the members of society according to their wants. Though it would be impossible that they should all have animal food every day, yet vegetable food, with meat occasionally, would satisfy the desires of a frugal people, and would be sufficient to preserve them in health, strength, and spirits. Mr. Godwin considers marriage as a fraud and a monopoly. Let us suppose the commerce of the sexes established upon principles of the most perfect freedom. Mr. Godwin does not think himself that this freedom would lead to a promiscuous intercourse, and in this I perfectly agree with him. The love of variety is a vicious, corrupt, and unnatural taste, and could not prevail in any great degree in a simple and virtuous state of society. Each man would probably select himself a partner to whom he would adhere as long as that adherence continued to be the choice of both parties. It would be of little consequence, according to Mr. Godwin, how many children a woman had or to whom they belonged. Provisions and assistance would spontaneously flow from the quarter in which they abounded to the quarter that was deficient. See Book 8, Chapter 8, in the third edition, Volume 2, page 512 and every man would be ready to furnish instruction to the rising generation according to his capacity. I cannot conceive a form of society so favourable upon the whole to population. The irremediableness of marriage, as it is at present constituted, undoubtedly deters many from entering into that state. An unshackled intercourse, on the contrary, would be a most powerful incitement to early attachments, and, as we are supposing no anxiety about the future support of children to exist, I do not conceive that there would be one woman in a hundred, of twenty-three, without a family. With these extraordinary encouragements to population, and every cause of depopulation, as we have supposed, removed, the numbers would necessarily increase faster than in any society that has ever yet been known. I have mentioned, on the authority of a pamphlet published by Dr. Stiles, and referred to by Dr. Price, that the inhabitants of the back settlements of America doubled their population in fifteen years. England is certainly a more healthy country than the back settlements of America, and, as we have supposed, every house in the island to be airy and wholesome, and the encouragements to have a family greater even than with the back settlers, no probable reason can be assigned why the population should not double itself in less, if possible, than fifteen years. But to be quite sure that we do not go beyond the truth, we will only suppose the period of doubling to be twenty-five years, a ratio of increase which is well known to have taken place throughout all the northern states of America. There can be little doubt that the equalization of property which we have supposed, added to the circumstance of the labour of the whole community being directed chiefly to agriculture, would tend greatly to augment the produce of the country. But to answer the demands of a population increasing so rapidly, Mr. Godwin's calculation of half an hour a day for each man would certainly not be sufficient. It is probable that the half of every man's time must be employed for this purpose. Yet, with such or much greater exertions, a person who is acquainted with the nature of the soil in this country, and who reflects on the fertility of the lands already in cultivation, and the barrenness of those that are not cultivated, 
will be very much disposed to doubt whether the whole average produce could possibly be doubled in twenty-five years from the present period. The only chance of success would be ploughing up all the grazing countries, and putting an end almost entirely to the use of animal food. Yet a part of this scheme might defeat itself. The soil of England will not produce much without dressing, and cattle seem to be necessary to make that species of manure which best suits the land. In China it is said that the soil in some of the provinces is so fertile as to produce two crops of rice in the year without dressing. None of the lands in England will answer to this description. Difficult, however, as it might be to double the average produce of the island in twenty-five years, let us suppose it effected. At the expiration of the first period, therefore, the food, though almost entirely vegetable, would be sufficient to support in health the doubled population of fourteen millions. During the next period of doubling, where will the food be found to satisfy the importunate demands of the increasing numbers? Where is the fresh land to turn up? Where is the dressing necessary to improve that which is already in cultivation? There is no person with the smallest knowledge of land but would say that it was impossible that the average produce of the country could be increased during the second twenty-five years by a quantity equal to what it at present yields. Yet we will suppose this increase, however improbable, to take place. The exuberant strength of the argument allows of almost any concession. Even with this concession, however, there would be seven millions at the expiration of the second term unprovided for. A quantity of food equal to the frugal support of twenty-one millions would be to be divided among twenty-eight millions. Alas! What becomes of the picture where men lived in the midst of plenty, where no man was obliged to provide with anxiety and pain for his restless wants, where the narrow principle of selfishness did not exist, where mind was delivered from her perpetual anxiety about corporal support and free to expatiate in the field of thought which is congenial to her. This beautiful fabric of imagination vanishes at the severe touch of truth. The spirit of benevolence, cherished and invigorated by plenty, is repressed by the chilling breath of want. The hateful passions that have vanished reappear. The mighty law of self-preservation expels all the softer and more exalted emotions of the soul. The temptations to evil are too strong for human nature to resist. The corn is plucked before it is ripe, or secreted in unfair proportions, and the whole black train of vices that belong to falsehood are immediately generated. Provisions no longer flow in for the support of the mother with a large family. The children are sickly from insufficient food. The rosy flush of health gives place to the pallid cheek and hollow eye of misery. Benevolence, yet lingering in a few bosoms, makes some faint expiring struggles, till at length self-love resumes his wanted empire and lords it triumphant over the world. No human institutions here existed, to the perverseness of which Mr. Godwin ascribes the original sin of the worst men. Book 8, Chapter 3, in the third edition, Volume 2, page 462. No opposition has been produced by them between public and private good. No monopoly had been created of those advantages which reason directs to be left in common. No man had been goaded to the breach of order by unjust laws. Benevolence had established her reign in all hearts, and yet, in so short a period as within fifty years, violence, oppression, falsehood, misery, every hateful vice, and every form of distress, which degrade and sadden the present state of society, seem to have been generated by the most imperious circumstances, by laws inherent in the nature of man, and absolutely independent of it, human regulations. 
if we are not yet too well convinced of the reality of this melancholy picture, let us but look for a moment into the next period of twenty-five years, and we shall see twenty-eight millions of human beings without the means of support, and before the conclusion of the first century, the population would be one hundred and twelve millions, and the food only sufficient for thirty-five millions, leaving seventy-seven millions unprovided for. In these ages, want would be indeed triumphant and rapine and murder must reign at large and yet all this time we are supposing the produce of the earth absolutely unlimited and the yearly increase greater than the boldest speculator can imagine this is undoubtedly a very different view of the difficulty arising from population from that which mr godwin gives when he says myriads of centuries of still increasing population may pass away and the earth be still found sufficient for the subsistence of its inhabitants I am sufficiently aware that the redundant twenty-eight millions of seventy-seven millions that I have mentioned could never have existed. It is a perfectly just observation of Mr. Godwin that there is a principle in human society by which population is perpetually kept down to the level of the means of subsistence. The sole question is, what is this principle? Is it some obscure and occult cause? Is it some mysterious interference of heaven which, at a certain period, strikes the men with impotence and the women with barrenness? Or is it a cause, open to our researches, within our view, a cause which has constantly been observed to operate, though with varied force, in every state in which man has been placed? Is it not a degree of misery, the necessary and inevitable result of the laws of nature? which human institutions, so far from aggravating, have tended considerably to mitigate, though they never can remove? It may be curious to observe, in the case that we have been supposing, how some of the laws which at present govern civilized society would be successively dictated by the most imperious necessity, as man, according to Mr. Godwin, is the creature of the impressions to which he is subject, the goadings of want could not continue long before some violations of public or private stock would necessarily take place as these violations increased in number and extent the more active and comprehensive intellects of the society would soon perceive that while population was fast increasing the yearly produce of the country would shortly begin to diminish the urgency of the case would suggest the necessity of some immediate measure to be taken for the general safety some kind of convention would then be called, and the dangerous situation of the country stated in the strongest terms. It would be observed that while they lived in the midst of plenty, it was of little consequence who laboured the least, or who possessed the least, as every man was perfectly willing and ready to supply the wants of his neighbour. But that the question was no longer whether one man should give to another that which he did not use himself, but whether he should give to his neighbour the food which was absolutely necessary to his own existence it would be represented that the number of those that were in want very greatly exceeded the number and means of those who should supply them that these pressing wants which from the state of the produce of the country could not all be gratified had occasioned some flagrant violations of justice that these violations had already checked the increase of food and would if they were not by some means or other prevented throw the whole community in confusion that imperious necessity seemed to dictate that a yearly increase of produce should, if possible, be obtained at all events, that in order to effect this first, great, and indispensable purpose, it would be advisable to make a most complete division of land, and to secure every man's stock against violation by the most powerful sanctions, even by death itself. 
It might be urged, perhaps, by some objectors that, as the fertility of the land increased, and various accidents occurred, the share of some men might be much more than sufficient for their support, and that when the reign of self-love was once established, they would not distribute their surplus produce without some compensation in return. It would be observed, in answer, that this was an inconvenience greatly to be lamented, but that it was an evil which bore no comparison to the black train of distresses that would inevitably be occasioned by the insecurity of property, that the quantity of food which one man could consume was necessarily limited by the narrow capacity of the human stomach, that it was not certainly probable that he should throw away the rest, but that even if he exchanged his surplus food for the labour of others, and made them in some degree dependent on him, they would still be better than that these others should absolutely starve. It seems highly probable, therefore, that an administration of property, not very different from that which prevails in civilized states at present, would be established, as the best, though inadequate, remedy for the evils which were pressing on the society. The next subject that would come under discussion, intimately connected with the preceding, is the commerce between the sexes. It would be urged, by those who had turned their attention to the true cause of the difficulties under which the community laboured, that while every man felt secure that all his children would be well provided for by general benevolence, the powers of the earth would be absolutely inadequate to produce food for the population which would inevitably ensue, that even if the whole attention and labour of the society were directed to this sole point, and if, by the most perfect security of property, and every other encouragement that could be thought of, the greatest possible increase of produce were yearly obtained, yet still, that the increase of food would by no means keep pace with the much more rapid increase of population. That some check to population, therefore, was imperiously called for. That the most natural and obvious check seemed to be to make every man provide for his own children, that this would operate in some respect as a measure and guide in the increase of population, as it might be expected that no man would bring beings into the world for whom he could not find the means of support, that where this notwithstanding was the case, it seemed necessary for the example of others that the disgrace and inconvenience attending such a conduct should fall upon the individual, who had thus inconsiderably plunged himself and innocent children in misery and want. The institution of marriage, or at least of some express or implied obligation on every man to support his own children, seems to be the natural result of these reasonings in a community under the difficulties that we have supposed. The view of these difficulties presents us with a very natural origin of the superior disgrace which attends a breach of chastity in the woman than in the man. It could not be expected that women should have the resources sufficient to support their own children. When, therefore, a woman was connected with a man who had entered into no compact to maintain her children, and, aware of the inconveniences that he might bring upon himself, had deserted her, these children must necessarily fall for support upon the society, or starve, and to prevent the frequent recurrence of such an inconvenience, as it would be highly unjust to punish so natural a fault by personal restraint or infliction, the men might agree to punish it with disgrace. The offence is besides more obvious and conspicuous in the woman, and less liable to any mistake. The father of a child may not always be known, but the same uncertainty cannot easily exist with regard to the mother where the evidence of the offence was most complete, and the inconvenience to the society at the same time the greatest. There it was agreed that the large share of blame should fall, 
the obligation on every man to maintain his children the society would enforce if there were occasion and the greater degree of inconvenience or labour to which a family would necessarily subject him added to some portion of disgrace which every human being must incur who leads another into unhappiness might be considered as a sufficient punishment for the man that a woman should at present be almost driven from society for an offence which men commit nearly with impunity seems to be undoubtedly a breach of natural justice but the origin of the custom as the most obvious and effectual method of preventing the frequent recurrence of a serious inconvenience to a community appears to be natural though not perhaps perfectly justifiable this origin however is now lost in the new train of ideas which the custom has since generated what at first might be dictated by state necessity is now supported by female delicacy and operates with the greatest force on the part of society where if the original intention of the custom were preserved there is the least real occasion for it when these two fundamental laws of society the security of property and the institution of marriage were once established inequality of conditions must necessarily follow those who were born after the division of property would come into a world already possessed if their parents from having too large a family could not give them sufficient for their support what are they to do in a world where everything is appropriated we have seen the fatal effects that would result to a society if every man had a valid claim to an equal share of the produce of the earth the members of a family which was grown too large for the original division of land appropriated to it could not then demand a part of the surplus produce of others as a debt of justice it has appeared that from the inevitable laws of our nature some human beings must suffer from want these are the unhappy persons who in the great lottery of life have drawn a blank the number of these claimants would soon exceed the ability of the surplus produce to supply moral merit is a very difficult distinguishing criterion except in extreme cases the owners of surplus produce would in general seek some more obvious mark of distinction and it seems both natural and just that except upon particular occasions their choice should fall upon those who were able and professed themselves willing to exert their strength in procuring a further surplus produce and thus at once benefiting the community and enabling these proprietors to afford assistance to greater numbers all who were in want of food would be urged by imperious necessity to offer their labour in exchange for this article so absolutely essential to existence the fund appropriated to the maintenance of labour would be the aggregate quantity of food possessed by the owners of land beyond their own consumption when the demands upon this fund were great and numerous it would naturally be divided in very small shares labour would be ill-paid men would offer to work for a bare subsistence and the rearing of families would be checked by sickness and misery on the contrary when this fund was increasing fast when it was great in proportion to the number of claimants it would be divided in much larger shares no man would exchange his labour without receiving an ample quantity of food in return labourers would live in ease and comfort and would consequently be able to rear a numerous and vigorous offspring on the state of this fund the happiness or the degree of misery prevailing among the lower classes of people in every known state at present chiefly depends and on this happiness or degree of misery depends the increase stationariness or decrease of population and thus it appears that a society constituted according to the most beautiful form that imagination can conceive with benevolence for its moving principle instead of self-love and with every evil disposition in all its members corrected by reason and not force 
would, from the inevitable laws of nature, and not from any original depravity of man, in a very short period degenerate into a society constructed upon a plan not essentially different from that which prevails in every known state at present. I mean, a society divided into a class of proprietors and a class of labourers, and with self-love the mainspring of the great machine. In the supposition I have made, I have undoubtedly taken the increase of population smaller, and the increase of produce greater, than they really would be. No reason can be assigned why, under the circumstances I have supposed, population should not increase faster than in any known instance. If, then, we were to take the period of doubling at fifteen years, instead of twenty-five years, and reflect upon the labour necessary to double the produce in so short a time, even if we allow it possible, we may venture to pronounce with certainty that if Mr. Godwin's system of society was established in its utmost perfection, instead of myriads of centuries, not thirty years could elapse before its utter destruction from the simple principle of population. I have taken no notice of emigration for obvious reasons. If such societies were instituted in other parts of Europe, these countries would be under the same difficulties with regard to population, and would admit no fresh members into their bosoms. If this beautiful society were confined to this island, it must have degenerated strangely from its original purity, and administer but a very small portion of the happiness it proposed. In short, its essential principle must be completely destroyed, before any of its members would voluntarily consent to leave it, and live under such governments as at present exist in Europe, or submit to the extreme hardships of first settlers in new regions. We well know, from repeated experience, how much misery and hardship men will undergo in their own country, before they can determine to desert it, and how often the most tempting proposals of embarking for new settlements have been rejected by people who appear to be almost starving. End of chapter 10. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards.